Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Rapala, which in Finnish actually translates to mud. Tropical Storm Steve Austin. That would have been badass. <laughs> Yo, bro, I'll bring the case of Miller. You got the asparagus. Like, why Who? Why is there asparagus in fishing? I just feel bad for the fish, because it already lost most of its dignity getting caught by this dude who's just blind drunk. <laughs> Bent! Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that can't even feign mild enthusiasm anymore when you hand off your phone and make a scroll through 35 frames of your PB largemouth. Oh. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and and just wait a second. Was that that PB thing? Was that just for Stephen Rinella's benefit? Because you know that's a pet peeve of his, right? You know he kind of hates that. No, no, I actually had no idea he had a problem with the acronym PB. <laughs> I, he's the boss, so I probably should have known that, but I, I don't know. I didn't. It it never really bothered me, but just what bothers me is is having to pretend I want to see tons of photos of it on your phone. Mm. This mm. this right here, this right here is why I don't go to barbecues with a bunch of people I don't know. Hold up, that's there's a legitimate bright side for the past ten months because ain't no barbecues going down, right? Like <laughs> true. And and now these days when I run into people, right, as opposed to sometimes in the past, they don't just start handing me their phone to show off pics. Right? No, like they ever sure since don't. ever since that run on Lysol wipes, that kind of that behavior just sort of shut down. You don't know where I've been, Lou. Oh my god! <laughs> you don't know where I've been. <laughs> I'm not trying to be a dick. Like I. <sighs> I'm not, but I, I, I don't totally get it either, right? Okay, you caught a big fish. I'm honestly happy for you. Like, legitimately, I'm happy for you. Mm-hmm. But in, unless the photos that you're showing me, like, unless they're super unique in some way or, or you're using them to illustrate a point in a really good story that you're telling me, I just don't care. I don't. I'm sorry. Okay, listen, 
Before I, I retort with a steaming cup of counter-argument on what you're saying right now, just a quick <laughs> friendly reminder that the Ben Podcast is fueled by Black Rifle Coffee. If you like coffee and fishing, head on over to blackriflecoffee.com backslash mediator to sign up for their coffee subscription service. Then use the code mediator at checkout to take 20% off your order. Plug done. Back to your little rant here. Mm-hmm. Are you hating on grip and grins in general or just when people show them to you uninvited? Mm-hmm. I'm confused. Uh... I guess it's a little of both, if okay. I'm being honest. All right, like I have a complicated relationship with Griffin Grins, right? It's and it's it's changed. It has changed over time. <laughs> at this moment, like at this moment in time, I I I can't believe I'm about to say this. I kind of think about them the same way I think about dick pics. All right, oh. I have no problem. <laughs> I have no problem with people taking all the Griffin Grins they want for themselves or loved ones or posterity or whatever. Could you superimpose the word dick pick in that statement? Like, I have no problem how many dick yes, pics you take yes, for yourself. Yes, that, that, okay. This is all intentional. <laughs> and if someone asks to see your grip and grins, then by all means, share. But, like, I think maybe we need to rethink this practice of just showing our grip and grins to people who have expressed no desire to see them. That's yeah. what I think. Yeah, but what you define at the end there is social media. Mm. And, we, and we know you don't like social media. And and while I don't want to like be subjected to random phone scrolling, I don't know. I you know I feel beholden to social media to some degree. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and that, okay. Look, you're right. I don't love social media, but I, the, here's where your analogy breaks down for me, right? Because social media is it's voluntary. I can true. unfollow you if it's if true. I find you're gripping and grinning like too egregious, or or better yet, I can choose not to go on social media at all. Right? You're right. You're right, but I also, man, you're, I, I think you're kind of not being realistic about this because just because you don't love hero shots, it doesn't really change the fact that big fish turn heads, right? Yeah. Like our business is kind of about turning heads with big fish at times, yeah. right? So yeah. I I get tired of both looking at and taking grip and grins, but like it's that or a close-up, neither of which are original. And the <laughs> grip and grins get way more attention, and look, like, so I get annoyed with it too. I get annoyed with myself because I pose the exact same f- way in every grip and grin, whether it's shot by someone else or via the camera timer. And I hate myself for it. And I want to be creative and do something different. But after all these years, like my muscle memory goes right to rifle pose. I just go there. <laughs> pow, 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 pow. Totally. I just come, yes, up, seen, I just come up shooting. you do it. Yeah. And that's, and that, and that's my problem. You know, but my point is that you're not being realistic and you're also forgetting about captains and guides, which is ironic considering you were once both of those. <laughs> we have we can't uh, overlook that. And and they yeah. make money showing showing grip and grins, dude. Like they they yep. do have more value yep. than dick pics, in my yep. opinion, though maybe someone makes money off those two. I don't know. So Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Look, the, the dick pick analogy, uh maybe it's a little flawed. Maybe I went too far with that. Slightly. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> And man, like I, just to clear this up, I, I take and I post grip and grins. Okay. Like I, I do mm-hmm. understand that my, my gripe mm-hmm. is my gripe really, I think lies in the, the handing off the phone deal that we were talking mm-hmm. about, like the being forced to see it. But to your point, like, let me get back to your point on, on, on guides and captains. I, I struggle with that when I was guiding. Like I, I actually hated grip and grins way more when I was a guide, I think than I do now because I feel like they set people up for disappointment, right? Like (laughs) all anyone sees on social media or anywhere in fishing media at all, really are these just huge giant fish. And so they show up 
They show up to their day of guided fishing and their, their expectations are dictated by Instagram accounts instead of reality. And let's just be, let's just be honest. If you, if you think your first day of trout fishing for the season is going to look like the fly Lords page, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And it just makes for a terrible trip for the guide, for the client, for anybody. Look, all right, I'm going to get off my soapbox and, okay. and be done with this. I think, <laughs> I think we've reached some sort of conclusion. Maybe. I don't know. I don't uh, know. I don't know. But I think we need to move on to the fishing report. And this particular contributor does not care at all about this debate. He uh, he isn't posting anything to promote himself because his guiding business is not what you would call legal. That is correct. You won't see pics of down the road Darren anywhere. I mean, hell, we just bleeped his last name. He's so under the radar. (laughs) Yes. Because he's got warrants out or something. But we're still (laughs) going to kick it over to our favorite South Louisiana black ops charter captain who's trying to keep himself moving forward despite the seemingly endless strings of hurricanes this season. Hey, y'all, it's down the road Darren with the South Louisiana Fishing Report. Holy Mary, Mother of God, was that a hellacious hurricane season. We had so many storms, they went through the whole alphabet with names and started picking some kind of weird Greek-sounding names. They should have named them after the WWF wrestlers like Hurricane Hulk Hogan and Tropical Storm Steve Austin. That would have been badass. (laughs) My damn trailer got all torn up during Hurricane Zeta last month, so I'm currently shacked up in a tent in my ex-old lady Chantel's backyard. It's a less than ideal situation, but it's got its perks. Sometimes I come home with a case of bush heavies, and if I give her a few, she lets me use her microwave to warm up a can of ravioli. Anyways, the hurricanes did mess some things up, but the fishing is better than ever. The speckled trout are gorging themselves on shrimp right now, and if you can find a good falling tide, you can catch a nice mess of fish. Head down to Four Horse Lake when the tide's ripping and toss some plastics anywhere you see a bayou emptying into the lake. The trout'll be stacked up. It's gonna be a boat parade, so try to stay at two cast distance away from other boats. Some people got no respect these days and they come up right next to you. My little partner Austin been going out to the lakefront in New Orleans and throwing a cast net for shrimp. I went with him one night and before we could finish a bottle of taka vodka, we had already filled the ice chest up with shrimp. Chantel was pretty happy when I balled them shrimp the next day. She would have let me sleep on the couch that night if I hadn't got into an argument with her neighbor after my pit bull bit his Labrador retriever. Redfish are stacking up too and you can find them all over the place right now. Get this, I saw a dude fly fishing for redfish the other day. That poor dude kept waving his arm back and forth and back and forth. I can't believe somebody would go through that much trouble when all you gotta do is toss out a dead shrimp under a popping cork and let the fish come to you. Poor sucker. So that's the report for the fall fishing down here in South Louisiana. I still got some days available if you want to go fishing this fall. The damn mayor in New Orleans canceled Mardi Gras this year due to the phony coronavirus and I normally make a lot of money that time of year. So I gotta book as many under the table charter trips as I can. I'm trying to get my mama a new dryer for Christmas and I may or may not have promised my boy Joey Campo I'd buy his jet ski. Anyways, I'll see y'all next time. Holla at me. So listen, all our stupid BSing aside, South Louisiana and much of the Gulf Coast is really coming out of what was a brutal, brutal hurricane season. Yeah. And yep. while while we know that's just kind of the way of life down there, life in the cone, as they say, mm-hmm. 
um, you know, people are dealing with some serious shit and, and trying to put the pieces back together. And I think it's just a good time, a good jumping off point to remind you guys that now is the perfect time to book a fishing trip. If you've mm-hmm. been down there, you know the fishing is outstanding. It's so good. I mean, you've spent more time there than I have, but it's 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 amazing. And even for those of you who aren't traveling right now, which I know a lot of you aren't, this is a great opportunity to put down a deposit with a quality captain, and you can use that when you are traveling again, right? It'll yeah, it'll yeah. really help out some folks who are scrambling, and it will give you something to look forward to, which is also beneficial. Absolutely, and we get hit up all the time by listeners uh, looking for for captain recommendations, and we're always happy to help in that arena. Uh, so if you need a recommendation for a captain or guide in that area, hit us up. We'll be happy to point you in the right direction. Uh, I've spent so much time down there. I miss it dearly. And my heart really does break for all my buds down that way after this cane season. Likewise. Yeah. And uh, and since we're, we're talking about traveling to fish, I feel like it's a good time to jump on over to Fin Clips, the segment where we tell you everything you never wanted to know about fish you may or may not have heard of. And this week, Joe's diving into the details on a mythical whitefish that only lives in the far north. Shefish have been called the tarpon of the north. Not only because they jump and pull like tarpon, but because they kind of look like them too. They've got dime-sized bright silver scales and a strong extended lower jaw that when unhinged can suck up prey with a forceful vacuum just like those poons. But tarpon are kind of sort of big-ass herring. Shefish, on the other hand, are members of the whitefish family. Matter of fact, they're the biggest member of the whitefish family in North America, and I have been enamored with them since I was six years old. That was the year someone gave me a North American Fishing Club book all about the freshwater species in, you guessed it, North America, because that's kind of their thing. But there in the first few pages was a photo of a gent mean-mugging on a pristine river with a shefish. The book, however, said they were primarily known as Inconu, which translates into unknown fish and was coined by early French explorers in the shefish's native range. Per that book, where every species featured that little map of North America shaded to show you where said fish lived, shefish only lived way up at the tippy top of Alaska and Canada. And this made little me even more intrigued by them. According to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, today's shefish are most abundant in the Kuskokwim and Yukon River drainages, though there are a few other populations here and there in drips and drabs throughout Alaska, some of which overwinter in brackish estuaries, technically making shefish anadromous, even though not all of them will end up in briny water. In fact, shefish don't really seem to follow any set plans. Many populations winter in the low ends of rivers within deltas and bays, then travel thousands of miles upstream in summer to spawn and eat. Meanwhile, other populations stay in one place year-round, or migrate within a relatively small area. While long runners and homebodies are genetically identical, it is important to note that if you want to catch a true behemoth, like a 50-plus pounder, you're going to want to target the ones that winter closer to the coasts and make those monster runs. In and around the coastal city of Selawick, just above the Arctic Circle in the northwest Arctic Borough, as an example, 60-pounders are caught with relative frequency. Just, you know, dress warm, and if you insist on a Wendy's Baconator after you fish, you won't find one there. Now, a rare trait of the shefish is their rapid growth rate. Usually, fish that live in icy cold water grow slowly, but inland fish can reach 16 inches by the age of 2 and 14 pounds by age 8. Meanwhile, while the coastal fish grow slower than the inland fish, 
they can get much bigger. And studies have shown that they live much longer than inland fish, up to 20 years, to be exact. Historically, she-fish usefulness didn't really go beyond feeding the natives and their dogs. But their appeal as a target is growing year over year among anglers. Alaska locals target them with everything from live bait to lures, and they even get some biggins through the ice. Though their popularity is rising with the fly bros in particular. And that's the segue I'll use to get us to Fairbanks, Alaska in July 2019, where I was doing some pike fishing on Minto Flats with my bud Trevor Smith. I honestly didn't even realize I was in she-fish territory until Trevor brought up that a client had lucked into one on a spoon the season before. He'd been guiding the area for a few years, and it was the only one he'd ever seen. And I lit up, but was quickly extinguished when Trevor told me they were ghosts, man. Wanderers. Very hard to pattern. Here in one spot one day and gone the next. Yet the next day... While fishing a confluence of two creeks, I about shit my pants when what I thought was a big pike rolled over and revealed those silvery she-fish flanks. Trevor shit his pants. My friend John Frazier, who was along for the ride, shit his pants. And with soiled trousers, we all reveled in disbelief at our amazing fortune. We went two for five on she-fish, over 40 inches, all on the fly, in that same spot during the next hour. And the next day, just as Trevor predicted, the ravenous school was gone. It was a fleeting glimpse, but still, it allowed me to finally close that chapter of the North American Fishing Club book I'd been drooling over for 31 years. I am legitimately jealous that you caught a sheep fish. I, for yeah, real, are. man. Like, ugh, I'll, I'll also say you definitely deserve that one more than I do because I have not been dreaming about them since I was six. I don't know how, like, that's amazing. I don't, I don't think I even realized they existed until I was in my 20s. But still, they just look like such a cool fish. I, I hope I get to catch one one day. Oh, dude, super cool. And, and very strong. And it's um, if anybody here fishes in, in the southeast, it's a very snook-like eat. And the water. Well, they've, got, they've got like snook-like looking mouths, don't they? They do. They, you know, people call them tarpon of the north. They, I see the similarities there in looks for sure. But if you really look at their head. I thought it was very snook-like jaw structure, yeah. right? And yeah. the water where we were fishing, where this creek came in, was murky. And it was, you could just barely track your fly a few inches under the surface, and these things would ghost up out of the murk and just just suck it in and go ballistic. And I, I have no wall space left in my tiny home office, which is the only room in the house that is allowed to have fish mounts hanging in it. But if I did, my God, like that, I'd commission a new wood carving or replica. So badass. <laughs> Oh, so jealous. You have clearly, you've clearly bested me this week in terms of life fishing goals. I will, I'll give you that. But uh, let's see if I can make up some ground, maybe even even the score a little bit in fish news. Fish news! That escalated quickly. All right, let's do a little housekeeping here, shall we, before we throw down the news gauntlet. Um, we don't have much for you this week other than, than a holiday message of sorts. Um, and that is to say, we know Christmas is next Friday, but Bent, Bent doesn't have off for Christmas. So, no. Uh, no, in case you were wondering, yes, we will be dropping a show next week. Uh, matter of fact, we're calling it something along the lines of the, the Bent Christmas Extravaganza Special Spectacular. Something like that. We haven't quite figured it out yet. But um, spectacularly special for sure. Yes. Oh, 100 percent. 
Uh, move over Bing Crosby and the 24-hour Yule Log on TV. <laughs> Make way for, for this bullshit. Uh, but look, we did have a ton of fun putting it together. And listen, while we don't expect everyone to tune in on Christmas Day, because, you know, it's Christmas Day, just letting you guys know it's coming. And if you catch it later after Christmas, perhaps it'll extend the good tidings for you or something like that. Uh, to steal a line from uh, from Scrooged, you'll love it. <laughs> that a boy. Couldn't, couldn't a help myself. Couldn't help myself there. <laughs> All right, my my housekeeping this week is is also kind of Christmassy, but it's it's it is simultaneously a bit of shameless self promotion, and that's not something I'm usually comfortable doing. But there's a chance you might still need a Christmas gift, and if you order like right now. It might actually get delivered <laughs> like in now, time. Now, like, like right now, now. Like right now, now. There's a chance you might get in time. Uh, the powers that be have asked me to inform you of a book title that is now available at the Meat Eater website and nowhere else. This is not a new book. Uh, in fact, it's, it's more than a decade old, but it's one that I have a soft spot for because I wrote it. The book is called <laughs> The Alaska Chronicles, an unwashed look at life, work, and fly fishing. And if you've ever wondered what it's actually like to work as a fishing guide at a remote wilderness camp, uh, this book will answer all your questions. And if you're thinking about becoming one, don't read the book. Yeah, no. Or, or definitely do read the book. Like, <laughs> dude, the truth is this, the, the narrative in that is so honest that I had to change all the names of everybody in the book and obscure the location. And despite <laughs> all that, my former employer still tried to sue me and the publisher over the book. But nice. he failed. And his loss can be your gain. So uh, this you is the, the second and final printing of the Elastic Chronicles, and all remaining copies can only be found at our website. So if you need a Christmas gift, go check that one out. There you go. Miles' book. Check it out. And while you're there, uh, grab a Meat Eater Fishing sticker. Because, yeah. look, we already know that the cost of a single sticker, when it's the same as the cost of the shipping, is prohibitive to you <laughs> buying a single sticker. Some of you have reached out. We know, but you're going to be there buying Miles' book anyway. Tack one on. Uh, okay, so let's get to news. Um, as most of you know by now, this is a competition. Miles and I do not know which news stories the other dude has found. And at the end of it, uh, our engineer, beautiful Phil, he's a beautiful man, he's going to weigh <laughs> in and uh, declare a news winner and, and make one of our, our holidays brighter. And it is your week to lead off, sir. So it have is. at it. It is. All right, my first story comes from the ICES Journal of Marine Science by way of Coastal Review Online. And they dug into a study recently conducted on popular fish species off the Carolina coast. One of the ways that biologists monitor fish populations is through tagging, right? They catch fish, put yep. tags in them, release those fish, and then see if and where they pop up again. And this is, uh, this is one area where anglers actually can participate in meaningful citizen science, right? If, if you catch a tagged fish, whether you harvest it or you release it, man, just report it. Yeah. Call up your local management agency. It's not hard to do, and it really matters. It's something we can all participate in to help keep track of and manage our fisheries, and it's, it's really, really helpful. It actually does make a difference. So anyway, these agencies collect all these data about different fish species, both from their own capture and release and from recreational and commercial fishermen reporting tagged fish. The authors of this new study that I read looked at tagging information on several different sport fish from recent years, and they reinterpreted those data through a statistical modeling method that I do not understand. And they Math. came up with some yep. yeah, yeah, statistics, and I, <laughs> I it's like magic. Uh, anyway, but they came up with some interesting conclusions that I, I, I 
do feel like I can speak about a little bit. The big takeaway is this. Fish are getting caught and released far more than had been previously thought, up to seven times for an individual fish. And that has some pretty significant implications for how we look at tagging studies. So first, here's the bad news. This might mean that we're overestimating fish stocks. Fisheries managers use information on tagged fish to estimate how many of a certain kind of fish live in a certain area, right? So the managers know that X number of red grouper are tagged in a particular area in a given season and that Y number of those tagged grouper are caught and reported. They then make guesses about how the whole population is doing based on assumptions about fishing practices, angler efficiency, and beliefs about fish mortality. Well, this new study seems to be showing that some of those assumptions might be wrong. Over the past few decades, catch and release has become a lot more prevalent, but the methods that are used to interpret population data haven't necessarily caught up with that trend. So managers might be assuming that a higher percentage of fish are being kept than actually are, and that might make them guess that the overall populations are higher than they actually are. Right. Right. So, So there's the bad news. But here's the good news. It seems like released fish survive at a higher rate than previously thought, at least the ones that make it through their first interaction with hook and line. According to Dr. Jeffrey Bucknell, one of the researchers who worked on the study, quote, the proportion of released fish that survive appears to go up after the first release. Bucknell went on to explain, this is counterintuitive. We expected that the effects of capture, including hooking, handling, and pressure-related trauma would be sort of cumulative, and that fish are more likely to die after perhaps the third release compared to the second. But that's not what they found. It seems like fish that survive being hooked and tossed back once have a better-than-average chance of surviving that encounter again. Ooh. Toughens them up. Yeah. Toughens them up. Yeah. Here's here's where I'm going to get totally unscientific and make a guess about why that is. My guess would be that this is an example of catch-and-release fishing influencing natural selection and that we as anglers are impacting the dynamics of the species that we fish for. The individuals that are not fit enough or adapted well enough to survive catch-and-release fishing are dying the first time they get caught, and the ones that can handle that trauma are surviving and going on to get caught again as well as maybe passing those traits on to future generations. So we might be pushing natural selection to favor fish that can survive catch and release over and over again. That was a, a very long limb that I just stepped onto. I'm going <laughs> to admit that. I'm pretty sure I'm going to hear from some of our listeners who actually are biologists uh, telling me that I took that line of thinking way past what the actual data can support. Oh, I was going to say, I was listening and going, man, this makes a lot of sense and had to remind myself that like Miles is just kind of making this part up <laughs> this, right now I'm based on his own assumptions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. That yeah. wasn't in the story. Yeah. Nope. Nope. <laughs> and and I'm going to welcome all those future emails that tell me how wrong I am. But uh, lucky for me, this is a fishing podcast and not a peer-reviewed journal. So I can do exactly. that. Exactly. Uh, but just to sum this all up, again, mixed news on this study, because it might mean that, that our fish stocks are actually smaller than we think, but the catch and release fishing might also have less detrimental impact than we thought. I got to stress, though, that it's a, a pretty small sample size. This, this focused on four species of fish in one geographical area off, off the Carolina coast. So it, I'm not trying to draw too large a conclusion off of it, but I found it pretty damn interesting. I got to admit. Yeah. So I had, I had heard something about this, and I think another one was black sea bass was a yep. big part of this. Yep. Right? Black, so sea black sea bass part sea of bass, it. Red grouper. Yep. And yeah, I mean, that that's sort of the only thing. Like uh, that side of it is interesting and uplifting that we might actually be 
toughening our fish up because we care more <laughs> about them and let more of them go. Right. It's like, you know, get beat up on the playground once next time dude comes after you. Now you're going to start swinging back. But again, like you say, like looking at the sample size in these types of fish, these are already, in my opinion, at least some pretty hardy wreck and reef dwellers. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like groupers are tough ass, hardy ass fish. So <laughs> if we could, if we could down the line, like, does this tie in or lead to like um, tougher brown trout, tougher rainbow trout? You know what I mean? I, yep. it, it could. I mean, if 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 your theory, which again is just a theory, holds holds <laughs> anyway. Now now we're like we're expanding on the part of it that was like not the science, but not that's, at all. I, I, no. I just can't help. I can't help myself because it would just seem like if it worked there in that small that small group, you know, why wouldn't it work elsewhere? But I guess you could already say that nobody's seeing much evidence of that on on trout streams or anything either. You know what I mean? Like, but it's also not counted. So how do you know? I mean, th that's the thing. It's only counted in certain places, right? And I know of one study, and this is just one study that was done years ago on Yellowstone cutthroat trout in the Yellowstone River, and they found that a lot of those fish actually got caught up to seven times a year because cutthroat, not that smart. And it's enforced catch and release fishing for Yellowstone cutthroat on that stretch of river. You can't keep them. So right. I think I'm not. I'm not making that leap over there, but I am going to say that, that some people have found in some studies that they're surviving and getting caught more often than we may have thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. And the, the only other thing I'll add to that, um, you know, because you had mentioned like, hey, people, you know, if you catch a tagged fish, do the right, call it in. Like, that's Just call what the it tag in. is there for. To me, it's like a badge of honor. And I've only ever caught one tagged fish in my life, and it was a striper. And I was like, oh, my God, like, there was the I tag, right? And I, I didn't keep that fish. I didn't even take the tag off, but I recorded everything real quick. And, like, I couldn't wait to call. I was like, where has this fish been? I'm dying to know how far did it go. And they were like, oh, yeah, we tagged it yesterday. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Uh, I've got a couple tagged fish. And now, since you've always got your phone with you, it's super easy. You just take a picture of the tag. Exactly. And you don't have to write anything down. So simple. Uh, exactly. But yeah, I actually caught one of those Yellowstone cutthroat trout in the Yellowstone system one time and reported that. And uh, I was not the first person to catch it that season. And, and yeah. then a bonefish in Hawaii. Those are my two tagged fish. Excellent. Excellent. Well, here's what I'll say. I'll, if, if, if you're interested in catching the same fish multiple times, mm. maybe um, in order to do that, you know, it's, you have to think outside the box in terms of the baits you give it, because maybe it's seen your shit too many times. <laughs> so that's my, that's my segue into this, what I think is a very fun little ditty that I found on the website of Ohio's Country Journal. And the headline is simply Odd Fishing Baits, which is not a good headline. Great story, though. And it's by <laughs> Dan Armitage. And up front, Right, it gives you a little background on the app Fishbrain, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with. Um, but in case you're not, this is right from the story. Fishbrain is said to be the world's most popular mobile app and social network for people who enjoy angling. The free-to-use app, with more than 10 million users worldwide, helps create the best possible fishing experience by providing everyone, whether beginner or pro, with the tools, insights, and support to enjoy the world's most popular sport. Um, I'm certainly familiar with it, but I'm also not on it. So to be honest, I can't really speak too much to the inner workings of it because I'm not there. I will say, I know some people that love it. I know a whole lot of people who despise fish brain because they say it's, <laughs> there's no greater spot burn tool on the planet. But for the purpose of this story, that's, that's neither here nor there, right? Fish brain recently called on that huge user base to tell them the weirdest bait they ever used and what they caught with it. And apparently they got such a huge response that they were able to whittle it down to the top five categories of unconventional baits, which are 
candy, meat, chips and crackers, fruits and plants and leaves, and finally, fast food. Okay? Mm. So now, those categories are not overly surprising in and of themselves, but uh, the story pulled some user quotes within all those categories, and I have, I'm going to read some of my faves. Note that I'm excluding the candy category because, as you might guess, that was all just gummy worms. Like, yeah, okay, gummy worms. Wait, fine. I mean, I would have, I would assumed it was all marshmallows. No, well, I'm, I'm sure marshmallows fell into candy. I'm sure that was part of it. But the quotes they pulled for the story, none of them were marshmallow. They were Got all okay. gummy bears, gummy worms, and stuff. So here's one from the meat group. I've been catching catfish in the lake in my neighborhood with Sam's Club corned beef lunch meat. That's from <laughs> Brechtel Fishing Family in Florida. That one I found oddly specific, like boar's head corned beef only catches the little ones. <laughs> right, You've got to have the Sam's Club, okay? <laughs> From the chips and crackers category, barbecue-flavored ruffles caught me some little brookies and cutthroat. I-dub Angling from Alberta, Canada said, um, I mean, that sounds like wild brookies to me. You know, you sprinkle some chips out there, they'll come yeah, eat it. They'll eat anything, yeah. Um, balsamic vinegar triscuits for carp, Matt Buell in New Mexico. <laughs> that's a waste. Those are too delicious. They are my, that's my favorite Trisket right there. Good. You can't use that for the carp bait. We got, my dad once caught a bluefish on Doritos. That's from a dude in Western Mass. And that's a blitz scenario. That's just one of those scenarios where they're frothing the water and hit anything that moves, right? Yep. And we got one. I've seen someone catch snapper on asparagus in Florida. <laughs> Why was that on your boat? Yo, bro, I'll bring the case of Miller. You got the asparagus. Like, why Who? Why is there asparagus in fishing? And lastly, I was in Key West not too long ago and caught Atlantic Spanish mackerel on a Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich. The whole sandwich? Well, I'm going to assume it's another blitz scenario, right? And it's pieces yeah. of the sandwich. Yeah. I think it's funnier to think of a Spanish mac eating an entire Wendy's sandwich. Um, but I thought this was fun. And if you break it down, though, right, as I've already hinted at, all these scenarios aren't really that impressive because like brookies and bluegills eating French fries and like fired up salty fish, they, they will take a shot at anything they think is food or that moves, right? In certain cases, I, I've seen it. Maybe you, like I once fed a whole tomato and two soggy ham sandwiches in the cooler from the day before to a school of ravenous bonita in Louisiana, mm -hmm. just like whatever slapped the water, it got ate. You know, yep. catfish, there was a lot of catfish stuff in there. Of course, like, you know, they're kind of vacuum cleaners, but I, I doubt there were entries like, I caught a 55-inch muskie walking a three-wired Subway Italian BNT over a weed top. Like, I, you know what I mean? Um, uh, so, that would be impressive, though. Exactly. So I think it's, I think it's, it's cool and funny to, to sort of hear some of these things people weighed in with. But it also got me thinking, like, what's the weirdest bait I ever use? And I, I would have to say, for me, it's, it's Play-Doh, which I'm betting oh. some people submitted. It just didn't fit in one of those categories. And, dude, it's been a long time. But if you think about it, it's essentially power bait minus the scent, right? It's totally, totally biodegradable, comes in any color you want, and you ball that up and you have a real nice little stock or trout bait. And I can't say that it outfished real eggs or power bait, but it, it did work. So that would be my contribution to Weirdest Bait. What nice. do you got? Uh, man, I, I, don't, I don't have a really weird one off the top of my head. The the catfish one made me think when I was a kid, we used to fish a, a lake for channel cats and we would use beef heart because it mm -hmm. was cheap, right? Right. Beef heart was way cheaper. The, the lunch meat's expensive. Like you can get beef heart for <laughs> next to nothing. So definitely use a lot of that. And I remember one time much later in life, uh, I was on a fishing trip at this this beautiful trout stream in the middle of this this gorgeous area in uh, in Argentina of all places that I got lucky enough to go to, but it got hit pretty hard. 
Right. And we were getting our teeth kicked in. We, we caught a handful of fish, but we didn't hardly catch anything. And we're just yeah. finishing up lunch at the spot. And the guide's like, hey, watch this. And he starts frisbeeing <laughs> out chunks of bread into the current. And these giant trout just start boiling everywhere. And I, couldn't, oh, I could no. not convince those fish to eat anything I threw at them. But, man, you whip a chunk of bread out there and get a good dead drift, and they would nail it. Oh, man, did that ruin the experience a little bit? A little like, bit. You had to look at those fish differently after that. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was, man. It, it, it kind of messed things up for him. But I had a great time. It was still yeah. a lot of fun, but it was it was also pretty frustrating. I'll just say uh, I'll just say before you move on, if, if anybody else out there has, has used some really weird bait shit, hit us up. I'd love to hear about yeah, it. Absolutely. We'll shout you out. So. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I mean, I guess the only connection I have from that story to mine, things that don't belong in places where they end up is as close as I'm going to get. Wasn't that uh, a Sesame Street segment? One of the one of these <laughs> one things of these, just doesn't belong here. I thought one it was of one of these things, things is not, way out of place. Not like the other. <laughs> yeah. Do some counting too. Yeah. One terrible story. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> All right, my my next story was uh, was spurred by an email we got from listener Catherine Williamson. She caught my attention, but 
you know, also kind of bummed me out. She wrote, I was walking back to my car and taking a fishing break. I stopped at a little dock, a favorite and popular fishing spot, when something on the far bank caught my eye. At first, I thought I was seeing a dead branch hanging from a tree. When I looked closer, I realized, one, it was an owl hanging by its wing, and two, it was alive. Ooh. Yeah. So the owl was entangled in fishing line that was attached to a crankbait that someone had broken off in said tree. But Catherine, you know, being the person that she is, clearly was upset and went out there and tried to free the owl and she couldn't get it out on her own. She just wasn't tall enough. I don't, I don't exactly know, but she couldn't get it out. So I love this part. She marched into a nearby subdivision and just started enlisting the help of strangers. Like, Hey, come on, we gotta, we gotta help this owl, which is, is fantastic. Uh, with the help of a few other people, they eventually freed the Eastern screech owl and, and they called animal control. Sadly, there's, there's no happy ending here. The wings, the owl's wing was badly broken and it had to be euthanized. Now, Catherine sent us this story, hoping we would get the word out about fishing line left and trees being problematic for birds. Now, this is a sad story, but one dead owl does not a problem make, right? Yeah. The thing is, I've actually seen this myself more than once. It seems like just about every year when I'm floating some of the the rivers around here during high water, I come across a bird or two that that got wrapped up in fishing line that's attached to a busted off rig that's, that's in the willows. And it's, you know, it's sort of a dramatic scene, right? You see their lifeless bodies skipping on the surface in the current. And yeah, it's it's kind of a bummer. Yep. And especially when it's a, it's a Western tanager, which I have seen. And it's one of the prettiest birds around. uh, And they're always in those willows that time of year, right? So they're, they're, they're susceptible to it. But still, again, anecdotal, not necessarily tragic or indicative of any kind of a large scale problem. So I started doing a little bit of research and there's a ton of information about marine birds and fishing gear, especially commercial fishing gear. But there's not much about freshwater species and recreational fishing gear. So I, I dug around for quite a while, and eventually I found a paper published in the Proceedings of the California Academy of Science in October of this year, and it seemed like it was looking at exactly this problem, right? This paper started by taking a news story from earlier this year about an Oriole that had died in a similar fashion to Catherine's owl. And like it made local news and got a bunch of attention. And then this paper was trying to figure out how big a problem this really is. Right. So I'm like, Oh yeah, I found it. So here, here's an excerpt from the paper's abstract to give you a sense of what it was talking about. Literature databases and the internet were searched for other reported cases of injury and mortality to birds from recreational fishing line. Several compilations of bird entanglement records have appeared in recent decades. However, these concerned marine environments, and most entanglements involved commercial fishing gear, whereas the present paper focuses on recreational fishing gear, mostly in freshwater and inland environments. Sweet. Right. Right. Yeah. This is going to answer my question. I thought I got to figure out. Well, I was wrong, and I'm going to save you all 10 pages of reading and just sum it up this way. (laughs) Birds die from lots of different natural and human-caused factors. Sometimes they get tangled in fishing line. No one knows how widespread a problem this is because no one is cataloging these events. Little, little, little anticlimactic, right? Yeah. I got another thought here before you chime in. I yep. want to say that, that despite all that and the inconclusive nature and the, how disappointed I was in that paper, this is something we can affect as a fishing community by simply taking the time and effort not to leave gear in trees. Maybe you can afford to buy a new knockoff Rapala crayfish pattern crankbait and good for you. You really made it. But maybe 
the cost of the bait shouldn't be the only factor in deciding if you wade into the creek and retrieve the lure. When stories about cute and pretty birds getting caught in fishing line and hanging themselves hit national news, which they do, it makes all of us look bad. And it paints fishing in an unnecessarily destructive light, regardless of how widespread this problem actually is. And I'm going to close with a, a, one more quick personal story. Years ago, I was guiding a couple, and they were just trying to figure out if fishing was something they were going to do. Like, they weren't into it yet, but they were, they were thinking about it. They were fishing curious. Right. Midway through the day, we saw a red-winged blackbird fluttering erratically way up in the top of this, this Russian olive tree, and we went over to check it out. The bird was tangled in some leader that was attached to a big white streamer. I climbed the tree, and I freed the bird, which flew away strongly. I think it was okay, and I retrieved the lure. Those clients went on to fish with me for a decade. Like they got into it after that. And I'm not saying that right. was why, but it definitely, they had a very positive experience that first sure. year and they sure. never forgot freeing that bird. Additionally, I later went on to catch a two foot brown trout on that exact same streamer <laughs> that I had plucked from the tree. And so my point is, karma. Just ta take the time to pull the gear out of the trees, whether it's yours or not. You might save a bird, you might save fishing from bad press, and you might score a sweet new lure. So just go ahead and do it. Yeah, I mean, you, you basically hit on it. Birds aside, like, we shouldn't have to tell you just to pick up your shit and don't leave anything out there for, for any reason. And I can honestly say, man, I have never encountered a bird wrapped in fishing line anywhere. But it, it, is, it is interesting to me because, like, a stock image of East Coast fishing in many places is like a power line just wrapped in fishing line. You know what yep. I mean? Like, that's like yep. a stock... Oh, yeah. Like it, it's, it's just, there, there are places that I fish now that I've fished recently where, you know, we're out there in a boat, but you have guys that hit it on the bank. And I mean, we could just go tree to tree to tree and, and we do, and we get all kinds of free new lures and things like that. So I'm very cognizant of that. I try to leave nothing in trees, nothing behind. Um, you know, the only time it gets you is when you're, you're fishing on shore, casting across a, a river or something you can't cross. It's sort yep. of is what it is. You know, I've just never seen it, but um, I'm sure birds out here get wrapped up probably more often than birds out there because there's, there's just a shitload more line in trees. <laughs> and I'm not talking about some 7X. I'm talking about like 40-pound right. snagging mono. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> Yeah, but, again, um, man, I, I don't have a definitive answer on how often this happens. It happens enough that I've seen it. It happens enough that it hits national news from time to time. Are there cases where you're not going to be able to get it back? Yeah, of course. Far side of the river or if you're in really swift current in a boat and you can't stop. Like, I get it. It happens. I'm not demonizing anybody who's ever done this before. I'm just saying, like, if you can, make the effort. Try and get it out. And if you see one that isn't yours that you can get, go get it. It's pretty simple. Or also, you know, maybe learn how to cast better. Like, how many people have you seen, like, <laughs> overthrow on eight casts in a row? It's like, dude, your depth perception is that shitty? Like, it can't be that shitty. Anyway, we'll go from uh, saving birds to saving striped bass, um, mm -hmm. but not without issue. And this one hits close to home, but I, I think this is a good one because it, it drums up some uh, debate. And this is... I'm pulling my info here from the website of the Fisherman Magazine, uh, East Coast Mag. I've been reading that since I was a little kid. Um, and, and from the story, I'll just jump right in here. Approved in October 2019, the change to the Atlantic Striped Bass Interstate Fishery Management Plan, otherwise known as the FMP, implemented coastwide harvest reductions put in place in 2020, while also requiring the mandatory use of circle hooks when fishing with bait to reduce release mortality in recreational striped bass fisheries. And mm. says, 
As per this fisheries management plan, states are required to implement circle hook requirements by January 1, 2021. Okay, now I'm going to guess that I know how you feel about this, having talked to you about circle hooks, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, yeah, well, I'm going to tell you how I feel. Don't you worry. I I, Um, I trust that. But but look, this is big news here, right? And to be clear, this is not a Jersey story. This is not a Massachusetts story. Every Atlantic state that that has coastal, you know, that's that's coastal, like the water touches the state. You know what I'm saying? uh, That has a striped bass fishery. This applies to. This is a big deal, man. Oh, yeah, totally. And while at the surface, right, it, it, it seems like an automatic win. And many anglers feel that it certainly is, and this is very uh, long overdue, but it's also kind of ruffling some feathers. So now, now, personally, I'll get into my thoughts here. I, I do actually think this is a good thing, but the way I'd put it as it pertains to my striper fishing um, is I'll be able to work around its caveats, I think. And that'll make more sense as, as I continue, because... The reality with this is it's just not as cut and dry as it seems on paper. Uh, and that's because natural baits play a much bigger role in, in striper fishing than, than simply putting a chunk or an eel or a live mullet on a single hook and casting it out. You know, like it, it's real easy to think of it in terms of a piece of bait or a live bait on a hook and out it goes. So this whole circle hooks deal was up for final debate this fall. And to give you an, an idea of what I mean, some states asked for exemptions for certain lures and methods. One of the more notable was tube and worm. Maine asked for that to be exempt. And that's where you use these long rubber tubes with a treble hook on the back end. And that treble hook is tipped with a sandworm or blood worm. And yeah, it's an old school method, been around a long time, and it catches a lot of stripers. Massachusetts asked that it not apply to anyone fishing on four higher vessels. But ultimately, all of this was shot down, right? And this is from the story in The Fisherman. No exemptions were made for gear type or user group, and therefore this regulation includes shorebound private boat and anglers on board four higher vessels coastwide. With no gear, and this is where things get sticky, with no gear-type exemptions allowed, the new circle hook requirement in place for 2021 includes but is not limited to such angling techniques as tube and worm, eel skin rigs, rig deals, the addition of a pork rind, squid, etc., to a bucktail jig, mm. and, yeah, right, and all other scenarios where a natural bait is added to an artificial lure when targeting striped bass. That's huge. Right? So this is what what I was talking about when I said I can work around it. Personally, yes, tipping a bucktail with pork rinds or bait strips, very common method here, right? But I'm not going to freak out personally about only being able to tip a bucktail with a soft plastic, right? Again, just, just me. Not speaking for every striper angler on the coast. I don't troll. Tube and worm doesn't affect me. I don't fish rig deals. I can live without it. But I also fully understand why this would drive other dudes to madness. Like if those are your go-to, depending on where you are on the coast, and that's what you rely on to catch your fish, I get it. But here's where it gets personal, okay? This is the interesting one. I'm dying to hear what you have to say about this. The biggest question right now, particularly in Jersey and New York, is with snag hooks. And this, this affects me, right? So Manhattan, which we call bunker, that's the primary food source of big stripers in our area. And we get a run of them in the spring and a run of them in the fall with the bass. And keep in mind, these are big bait fish, right? A bunker right. can be 12 inches long. This is big bait. Uh, and one of the most common ways to use them is a method we call snag and drop. So you got all the bunker out there in a, in a school. 
You fire off a big weighted treble hook into them, sweep the rod, snag a bait, then you open the bale. And now because that treble hook's weighted, your, oh. your bunker just falls right below the school, acting all wounded and shit. And the stripers just eat it, right? And, you know, to outsiders, it might sound a little barbaric, but it's, it's super common here. Every shop sells snag rigs, highly effective. But here's my dilemma. I don't really snag and drop. And I never liked it for multiple reasons. One being, like, I'm just not always looking for meat in the box when I striper fish. So I don't want a striper to inhale a giant treble hook. Mm-hmm. But even more so, I've always been really particular about where a hook is in my bunker. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you snag, you don't know. Is it in right. the tail? Right. Is it in the gills? Will it be dead in a minute? So while I snag, I zip the bait back in, send it back out on a single hook pinned right behind the dorsal fin. And that's just because I believe bass eat head first most of the time, and the hook pulls out of that soft meat real easy. Um, now, you know, if you're not snagging bunker, right, you've got to cast net them, which is a whole other headache and not always very easy. And point blank, dude, I can't throw a cast net. Like, that's something I never <laughs> learned. I didn't it's grow so up in Florida. much harder than it looks. Exactly, right? So I never learned how to do that. But now, right, technically, even though I am only snagging for the purpose of getting bait. Can't do it. Well, wait. So in the time between the snag and retrieval of the boat, that's a live bait out there, not on a circle hook. And yeah. hell yeah, like your bunker gets trashed while you're reeling it in. Even if you're burning it in, it happens all the time. And this has sparked a bunch of debate. But, but you said now you can't. We don't know, right? Mm. Snag and drop is like the outlier that has not really been addressed. Is snag and drop out? Can I snag but not drop? And as far as I'm aware, what I can find, there is no official answer yet. But, you know, all other local methods aside, for many guys like me, dude, like, if you ban bunker snagging altogether, short of really dialing in my cast net game, which also, I mean, then you also have to find bunker in a cast netable scenario. Right, which in doesn't shallow enough present water. Itself. Yeah. Right. Short of all that, if, they, if, they, if it goes away, I can't really live bunker fish anymore, which is a really exciting way to fish. Like as live bait fishing goes, that's a big ass bait. And you know, like you feel the tail beat pick up and they get wet. Like, it's fun as shit. I love it dearly. Um, but there's, there's a lot of gray area at the moment. And um, I'll just close out by saying, you know, it was pointed out to me by a buddy who actually works at the fisherman that Virginia, as an example, um, they, they've had a law in the books for a long time that you can't snag any bait fish. So, are we ultimately headed there? You know, don't know, maybe. But there's there's haziness for sure, you know, even though the big picture I, should be good. But as you hinted to earlier, I, there's also a lot of guys throwing out the whole, like, circle hooks, gut hook more stripers than J-hooks, which is, you know, it's a whole other debate. Yeah, so, we don't have time to get into the circle yeah, exactly. versus J-hook debate. You, you took this in a different direction. Um, man, I don't feel like I know enough to make an informed statement on any of this, except to say... Anytime you start trying to put in regulations like this, you're going to wind up having issues like the one you're talking about, right? The whole idea behind them saying no exemptions was to clear up gray area. And yet, gray area remains. And so I I think I would say that I do not envy the folks trying to manage that fishery at all because what a terrible, thankless job that is. And, And also, I don't know that I could come up with a better solution right i think that taking away the exemptions was smart because otherwise it would be even an even bigger nightmare 
Yep. But you still wind up with these very specific cases that have to be figured out. Yeah, and that's the problem. Like it, it has to it has to blanket everything, but there's these just these little sort of like pain in the ass things that you, you can't really overlook. Years ago, billfish tournaments. They said if you're using natural bait like ballyhoo, you had to use circle hooks. Right, and I remember this. A certain way. Yeah, and I, if I'm not mistaken, that went away because guys were just like, "I appreciate what you're doing, but like we can't hook the billfish that way." You know, you're not going to make a bucktail with a circle hook on it. No, you know? you're not. So uh, that's what I mean. It it works with a bait, live or dead, on a hook cast out by itself. But there's so many other things that involve natural bait. We'll see what happens. Time will yep. tell. You know. Yep. Yep, and and I hope you'll give us a a, a report back once uh, sure. once you get through that season, once after, you know into next year, see how it's going. But in the meantime, we're going to hear from our all knowing and all powerful Phil the engineer about who has emerged victorious this week. And after that, we're going to head out onto the ice and relive a rather awkward moment involving a pike, a couple dudes, and an unnecessary piece of equipment. For giving me a new and exciting use for the 17 jars of rock-hard Play-Doh in my closet, Joe Cermelli, you're the winner this week. <laughs> I am also holding a survey on social media, so please visit my Instagram stories and let me know which snacks will make the least amount of mess in my bedsheets while I binge The Queen's Gambit on Netflix this Sunday. Why don't you take a picture of the life longer? <laughs> this week's awkward moment in angling comes to us from listener mike mancini and mike mike actually sent a couple photos but but one of them is not of himself it's of his wife and we're not totally sure that she gave her permission for him to send that and for us to roast it so dude uh, i'm glad you brought that up because in fairness when we started this segment we were like if you have whacked out pictures of your friends send them along too yeah actually ask them first yeah make because sure. that's that's like legal shit or something that we didn't think about when we said it so we're not lawyers just, <laughs> we're definitely not lawyers. But even though we're not using that 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 other image, Mike, we do appreciate you sending it because we like options. We, their, yeah. their options are good. Totally, totally. It is always good to have variety in case you missed it. That's kind of our shtick here on Ben. It's a variety <laughs> show. Whether you love or hate it, it'll be over in a minute and we'll be on to something else. Anyway, we chose this image for a few reasons. First, it's an ice fishing shot. And since we're heading into ice season, at least maybe... Maybe, depending on that, I keep hearing a lot about this La Nina thing this year. Yeah. Bust out, put away your mittens, bust out your shorts, New Jersey. Um, <laughs> we're trying to make sure that the hardwater crowd is adequately represented. Because even though I think it's fair to say Miles and I aren't like ice masters, we, we, we've spent plenty of time huddled over a hole on a frozen lake. I've been known to run full bore for the close flags, <laughs> at least. And, uh, you know, maybe on occasion crack a beer out there. So Yeah. I've definitely done that. I have. I, I I will say this though, like, and I've said it before, but I'm gonna say it again. I think ice fishing is just often and too often portrayed as an excuse to drink. Agreed. And and Agreed. I, I I keep bringing this up because I I thought that before I started ice fishing. I was like, dude, that's just a reason to go like drink whiskey in a shanty and <laughs> pretend like you're doing something. But I was wrong. And and there's actually there's actually a lot to it. Ice fishing can be pretty technical, and I think if you're hammered, you're probably not going to be fishing that well. You, you probably won't do all that well. Yeah. No, no, no. I agree. But hold on, though, because Mike's photo actually might suggest otherwise, That's to the contrary true. of everything you just said. Because the second reason we picked this one is that Mike's holding a legitimately good fish, man. He is. That, That's a solid pike. That yeah, is a healthy, healthy pike. It is. It's a respectable pike, or at least it looks pretty respectable, but it's kind of hard to tell with all the hands covering up the body. 
Because <laughs> here's the other thing. Here's where we go on a different track. Mike isn't the only one in this photo. He's okay? not. He's yeah. not. He's, he's got company, in fact. Let me just set this up. So, so there's Mike on the ice. He's holding his nice fish. It, it, it's pretty normal, really. But then you see Mike's buddy shoulder to shoulder with him. Also holding his fish (laughs) and like, it's a nice pike, like we said, but we're not talking about, this isn't like a 300 pound sturgeon that he's holding up. This requires no support from a buddy. No, he's capable of holding it on his own. Yeah. And Mike's, Mike's got the thing like well in hand, like he's got a good grip on it and his buddy's not even really holding it in, in like a, like a meaningful way. Like he's no. adding nothing to the hold of the fish. No. He's just kind of awkwardly, it's like fondling the tail, just covering and, up the tail, really. And I'll just, I'll just, I'll just go for the punch. They're both grinning like complete idiots. Yeah, yeah. No yeah. other way to say that. No. And tell me, it doesn't look like they're posing for a wedding photo. It does. Uh, it to, like yeah, they it's, should be. It's in like suits. the mandatory. It's like the mandatory groom and best man bro hug shot after the <laughs> ceremony. Yes. But I mean, instead, you know, we're not really celebrating a major life moment. They're just holding what I'd say is a decent pike. Yeah. Decent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, look, to be fair to Mike, he, he explained all of this in his email. He addressed all that and, and it's short. So I'll just read the whole thing. He wrote to us, this is my personal best Northern through the ice or otherwise. My buddy and I were 28 to 30 peebers deep and thought that standing shoulder to shoulder would help illustrate our majestic catch. Instead, we look like a couple noobs <laughs> who drank way too much. And they do. That is <laughs> that is exactly right. And Joe, like to your earlier point, that does yeah. undermine my claim about drinking and ice fishing a little bit because they, they happen to pull this one off. Yes, but wait, there's more. Because while his explanation there explains the goofy grins and awkward posing, it fails to address there's just one thing about this photo that... that that actually caught our attention. We haven't even ca- talked about the attention catcher yet. Because <laughs> he didn't being, even talk about it. No, that being the freaking jaw spreader still <laughs> lodged in the pike's mouth. All right. And I feel like, for those of you who don't know, a little clarification. <laughs> yeah. A jaw spreader, it's like a it's a metal spring-loaded device that, that you use to hold open the mouths of large and toothy fish, like pike and musky. So you can you like use that, it opens up the jaw, it holds it open, and you can remove the hook without getting your fingers all messed up. Yes, and and look, it's a perfectly acceptable tool. I have I have one, and and the size of the fish they caught justifies the use of a jaw spreader, no Agreed. doubt. But but once once you take the hook out of the fish, I'm going to go ahead and say it's generally customary to also remove the jaw spreader, <laughs> and you're <laughs> you're certainly going to want to remove the jaw spreader before you take a hero shot. And it's similar. It reminds me very much of. When you see that shot of somebody holding a fish horizontally, you know, with both hands supporting the stomach, but there's still a fish gripper or a boga hanging yes. off its jaw. Yes, it is. I see it all the time, and I'm like, you ruined your shit. You just ruined that photo. <laughs> Why'd you take it off? Yeah. Why would you take it off? Yeah. Yeah, it's like the pike version of that. That's a, I, that's a good analogy. And I, I just feel bad for the fish. <laughs> really? Like, that's what I think. I look at that, and I feel bad for the fish, because it already lost most of its dignity getting caught by this dude who's just blind drunk <laughs> I, I mean just, just, just out of his mind drunk but now yeah, caught by the drunk dude totally. by the hammered guy yeah yeah and but now on top of that it's getting held up for like a group fetish photo biting <laughs> down on the rough equivalent of a metal ball gag for fish i mean uh, i just feel for it <laughs> no dude, no you're it 
It is truly debased. And I don't know if I hope that fish was released because it, it's clearly a mature female and exactly the kind of fish you want passing on its genetics <laughs> or or just put out of its misery after that the, that level of humiliation. So, yeah. you yeah. know. Well, you know, to be fair, that's really what this segment is all about, humiliation. That's yep. kind of what we're doing here. Yep. And to all of you out there, if you want the chance to experience your own humiliation through us, please Send your awkward fishing photos. We uh, we look forward to them. They truly are the highlights of our week sometimes. Miles is saying true things. They really are the thing we look forward to most. Send those embarrassing fishing-related photos to us at bent at com, please. All right, for the record, that segment is a perfect example of the kinds of grip and grin photos that I like, <laughs> all right? The ones that don't take themselves seriously. I love those. Uh, that, my friend, is one point we definitely agree on. Another thing we agree on is your choice for this week's End of the Line segment. In fact, when I think about iconic lures, this is one of the first that comes to mind. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. This week... I'm going to tell you about the Rapala original floating minnow, which, you know, might be a little too on the nose. It's kind of like the interview we did with Oliver and I a couple weeks ago. One piece of tackle you cannot live without. A hook. Yeah, I really should have seen that one coming. Choosing to profile the best-selling lure in the world in a segment about lures, baits, and flies seems equally obvious. But just because most anglers know about this lure and have at least a few of them in their boxes doesn't mean they have the whole story. And trust me, it's a good one. First, let's clear up the pronunciation debate. Is it Rapala? 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 Technically, none of those are correct. Rapala was named for its Finnish inventor, Lori Rapala. The Finnish word Rapala has a distinctly rolled R but I wouldn't walk into your local tackle shop and ask them where they keep their rapalas. Actually, I, I take that back. I do recommend you do that, but please be sure to record audio of the whole thing and, and send it to us. As far as the Rapala Bait Company is concerned, you can pronounce it any way you want. They don't really care. They sell 20 million lures annually, and their products have caught more IGFA world record fish than any others, so they have that going for them, which is nice. But the world's most popular lure has a surprisingly humble and unique origin, as does the name itself. Lori Rapala carved the first iteration of this bait in Asikala, Finland. But Lori's family wasn't originally from there. They moved to that town when he was a young boy, and when they arrived, the local clergyman, who also functioned as the town's record keeper, failed to write down his family's actual surname, instead inscribing the name of the town from which they had emigrated. Rapala, which in Finnish actually translates to mud. Yeah, the inventor of the most popular lure in history was actually named Mud. As a young man, Lori was uneducated but enterprising. During the winter, he worked as a lumberjack, and in the summer, he worked as a farmhand and commercial fisherman on nearby Lake Payana. He harvested whitefish, pike, and perch but trout were the real prize. Three big trout would earn him more money than two weeks pay at a local factory. Lori primarily fished with trot lines and live minnows, an arduous and labor-intensive way of fishing, 
especially since he fished out of a rowboat and would regularly row more than 30 miles a day. First, he had to catch all his bait, and then he was constantly baiting and rebaiting his hooks while also trying to keep minnows fresh and lively long before portable aerators were a thing. Lori became convinced that a lure that effectively imitated wounded bait fish would be far more efficient. So, he started designing one. Story goes that his first few iterations didn't work, but Lori just kept on experimenting. According to one source, Lori consulted with a local hermit who lived on an island in the middle of Lake Payana to help assess what was wrong with his early inventions. In 1936, he completed a successful prototype for what would become, nearly three decades later, the Rapala Floating Minnow. It was carved from cork, covered with foil from chocolate bar wrappers tossed out by more wealthy neighbors, and sealed with cast-off photographic negatives that he melted over the lure. According to Lori's sons, he trolled it without a rod, tying the line directly to his thumb to ensure that he wouldn't lose the precious lure. And it worked. Legend has it that Lori started hauling in up to 600 pounds of pike and trout a day on his new invention. And the timing was fortuitous, because three years later, war broke out across Europe, and so did food shortages. Lori kept his family fed with his new lure until the war came to Finland. Then, Lori left the fishing to his sons while he went off to defend his homeland. He fought in the Second World War for six years before returning to fishing and lure making. In the post-war boom of economic prosperity that boosted much of the West, interest in recreational fishing began to grow. Anglers who came to fish Lake Payana from around Europe heard about Lori's amazing lures and began buying them off of him. Lori's sons started apprenticing under their father, learning to carve and craft perfect imitations of his invention. One of Lori's daughters, meanwhile, set to work designing and writing promotional copy and boxes to help sell the lures, and also keeping records to ensure that the family got paid, because unlike her father, she had been able to attend school. The younger generation of Rapalas transformed their father's idea for maximizing his commercial harvest into a recreational fishing business, utilizing mechanization and turning his hand-carved blueprint into a scaled production. Lori, meanwhile, maintained exacting standards for their products and insisted that every single lure be water-tested to ensure it had the perfect wobbling action before being sold. In 1952, the Winter Olympics were held in Helsinki. Several American competitors were introduced to the Rapala lure and brought some back with them to the U.S. Pretty soon, rumors began to spread about this so-called Finlander plug. A Minneapolis-based tackle rep named Ron Weber managed to track a few down at a bait shop in Duluth that was owned by Finnish immigrants. He was so impressed that he wrote Lori directly, asking for 500 units, which was nearly half of the annual production at that time. In 1960, Weber teamed up with sporting goods store owner Ray Ostrom to found Normark, the American company that would go on to distribute Rapalas across North America. Sales were slow for the first couple years. Rapalas cost nearly two bucks, which was more than double the price of most lures in those days. But everything changed in 1962 when Marilyn Monroe graced the cover of Life magazine just after her untimely death. That issue sold millions of copies, more than life had ever sold before, and it also just happened to include another article titled, A Lure Fish Can't Pass Up. 
2 million orders came in after that article ran, far outstripping the available supply. The company has continued to grow and innovate ever since, becoming the ubiquitous brand we know today. Though Lori died in 1974, his family continues to own and operate Rapala from their headquarters in Finland. And while much has changed since the Rapalas were hand-carving their baits from their home near Lake Payana, Lori's commitment to quality remains. Each lure is still individually tank-tested before being packaged and sold. Now, me personally, I will always love Rapalas. I've got musky, pike, smallmouth, walleye, panfish, and God knows how many barracuda and jacks on them. But despite all those catches, Rapalas will be forever synonymous with one single fish, and that's my first topwater largemouth. I was fishing a, a glassy dusk with one of my uncles, and he had me tie on an original floating minnow, black and gold, the same colors as Lori's prototype. And he told me to cast it out and twitch it on the surface with long pauses in between. The colossal splashing mayhem that followed may have helped set the trajectory of my entire life. It, it wasn't a big bass, maybe a couple pounds, but the way it attacked that floating wiggling lure was unlike anything else I had ever experienced. All right, if you were bidding on the auction items found in this week's abandoned storage unit, you'd have to choose between naming hurricanes after WWE wrestlers, what you can get when you cross a mountain whitefish with a tarpon, why jaw spreaders are not popular in the BDSM community, and the best use you've ever heard for the foil wrapper off a chocolate bar. Please, please keep those emails coming to bent at themeateater.com. We want your bar nominations, awkward photos, sale bin items, even your grip and grins. So long as they help tell a good story, maybe just drop us a quick note. Let us know how you're doing or how the fishing is out your way. We appreciate hearing from each and every one of you. And even though we're not perfect, we do try to respond to as many emails and messages as we can. It's true. It's true. It's a, it's like a little productive procrastination that mm -hmm. I can do when I'm putting off real work, like trying to write podcast segments. <laughs> true. Reading those emails is a great way to not do actual work. Whatever it is you're doing this week to avoid your real job, we hope it involves fishing. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. <laughs> 